Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I'm talking to Abigail Pfeiffer, a course lead for U.S. History at Western Governors University and an adjunct instructor for Southern New Hampshire University. In this episode, we're going to talk about her background, her research into prisoners of war during the Korean and Vietnam Wars, and the strategies that she used to build a history-related career after graduate school. We're going to focus on her current project, which is the Vietnam War Digital History Project. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, uh, my name is Abigail Pfeiffer, and I am a course lead at Western Governors University. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Yeah, so um, I got an associate's degree right when I got out of high school in Illinois back in early 2000s. And then I took a little time off. I guess my path to becoming a historian was a little different because I did take time off between an associate's. And then I got my bachelor's degree in humanities from Northern Arizona University. And then I have a master's in arts in military history from Norwich University, which I received in 2012. And then as soon as I um, graduated from Norwich, I started teaching on the adjunct circuit, if you will, in California. And so I've taught at a couple you know, a couple community colleges in the Bay Area. And I moved back to Phoenix. And I've been teaching um, in Phoenix online and ground classes in Phoenix since. Great. And uh, while you were in school working on these various degrees, what were your major, what was your research focus? What were, what were your interests? Yeah, well, I knew I always wanted to be a historian since I was about seven. When I was a little kid, my mom got me the Little House on the Prairie books, nice. which not that we would necessarily call those, you know, accurate history, right. but it kind of sparked interest in me. And from there, I always knew I wanted to study history. I just didn't need know exactly, you know, what area or era of history I was going to focus on. So when I got my associates, I took as many history classes as I could, and I took as many history classes as I could while I got my undergrad. Um, and then I had read this memoir in my early 20s by Philip Caputo called A Rumor of War, and it really piqued my interest in the Vietnam War. So when I was in graduate school and I was working on my capstone or my thesis, I really focused a lot on the Korean and Vietnam Wars because I feel there's a lot there's a lot of similarities there with the Cold War context. Mm -hmm. And so I really focus though on the POWs because when you look at the POWs of the Korean War, their uh, death rates while they were incarcerated were much higher than the Vietnam War POWs. And so my research really focused on kind of looking at those two wars and seeing where the similarities were and where the differences were in response to the POWs. And what did you find were the causes of those differences? Was it a different environment, different treatment? Yeah, so there's a couple different things that we could consider. Um, so when you look at the average age of a Korean War POW, it was 19. Um, and when you compare that to the average age of a Vietnam War POW, they were 26. Mm. And the, PO, the POWs in Vietnam were overwhelmingly officers because um, they were typically um, Navy pilots. And I'm um, speaking in general. Sure. There were POWs, of course, that weren't Marine or Navy pilots. But um, so they were um, officers. Um, they were trained in the code of conduct because there was no code of conduct for the Korean War POWs that comes in 1955 after the Korean War. So they were trained specifically in how to respond to being a POW, which the Korean War POWs didn't have that training. Mm -hmm. um, also, Vietnam War POWs tended to be captured in smaller 
or individual groups. Usually it would have been a pilot or their crew being captured together, where in Korea it tended to be large groups. And then they were marched to um, faraway camps, usually up um, on the border of uh, North Korea and China. And in that case, a lot of them died as well. And then there's also a systematic um, program of starving Korean War POWs for that first winter uh, between 1950 and 1951. And um, a lot of the POWs died during that time of starvation, which was kind of used um, as a way to, I guess, psychologically try to get POWs to speak out against the United States and speak mm. on the world stage about communism and how they were being treated well and, and things like that. So um, there are a lot of differences in when you compared their death rates. And so when the Korean War POWs came Came home, um, there was a lot of suspicion surrounding the um, kind of Manchurian candidate idea. Um, and there was a lot of misinformation put out, um, claims that there was, um, you know, half of the POWs collaborated um, and things like that, that were easily debunked when you look at the debriefings that were done by the military when they returned home. Um, and so that's really what kind of piqued my interest is um, how the Korean War is kind of forgotten, but also the POWs, their um, situation was kind of forgotten as well. That is really interesting because, yeah, the Vietnam POWs, that's, that is a fairly well-known phenomenon. I mean, even if you, yeah. at a very superficial level, you've got the Rambo movies and all of that, but the, <laughs> the Korean War part of it, that is, that's news to me. That's really interesting. I, um, I wonder the the fear of collaboration and all that could part of that have been the fact that they were coming home like at the height of the McCarthy type era or yeah. is it Oh absolutely yeah. timing was not on their side yeah. uh, for that war and you know especially coming off the heels of you know World War II was such you know a glorious victory for the United yeah. States and and the way that, you know, World War II veterans were received home is different than the way the uh, POWs felt they were received when they returned home. And not all of them, of course. I mean, but some of them did feel as if, you know, they were looked down upon or or looked upon suspiciously. Yeah, that's really interesting. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And I did interview a lot. Um, I interviewed. There's a. So I'm from Phoenix, and there was a POW in Mesa, Arizona, which is kind of like a suburb, I guess, of Phoenix. And I interviewed him back in 2012 for my capstone, and then he invited me to every year the Korean War POWs did a reunion. Hmm. And well, they recently stopped it because most of them are now, um, they're passing yeah. away, you know, they're older. And so um, I would get to go to the POW or the POW reunions every year. And I was able to, I did probably 40 plus hours of oral histories of the Korean War uh, POWs. Oh, wow. And I also did, excuse me, I also did um, interview several Vietnam War POWs over the phone and like on Skype and, and things like that. Wow. That's really interesting. Are you thinking of maybe... You've got those oral histories. You think you're going to try to publish those or? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I definitely want to make them all open source and available uh, for any educators or just the public to uh, be able to use and just learn more about. Because I think education should be uh, accessible to all of us. That's 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 great. And yeah, I totally am on board with that. And I encourage you to do that because I think that's that's really some really important stuff that could be lost, especially now that, you, as you say, that generation is dying off. And so it, that mm -hmm. that type of thing needs to be kept because you make a really you're drawing a really interesting comparison between the two the, the korean and the vietnam war um 
like I said, the Vietnam War POW situation is much better known. Um, it is interesting that the Vietnam that the average age of the POWs was twenty six was twenty six when you know the the mm-hmm. as the cheesy nineteen eighties song goes, the average age of the soldier was eighteen. So it's interesting that the that, that there is the age disparity, but it does make perfect sense that it was a lot of pilots getting shot mm-hmm. down over north, probably over Hanoi and North Vietnam and all of that. Yeah. Yep. And then it, there's actually a difference too, between the POWs that were held in North Vietnam versus the ones that were held in South Vietnam. Um, because the majority of Vietnam War POWs were held in North Vietnam mm. and they were the ones that were kept, you know, at the infamous Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. But if you were um, an American soldier that got captured in Vietnam and were a POW in the South, you had a much, much harder time of it just in the sense of, and I'm not discounting that they didn't have a hard time in the Hanoi oh, Hilton. Sure. Of course they did, but uh, the Southern POWs were actually kind of kept, they were usually kept outdoors and they were then kind of brought camp to camp by the Viet Cong and their death rates were much higher than the POWs in North Vietnam, simply because of the conditions and, and how they were kept. Mm. Yeah. that. Uh, yeah. And I can see, I suppose in the North, the jailers, if you want to call them that probably didn't have as much firsthand mm-hmm. experience with Americans, but in the South, they probably were much more closely connected to the sense of corruption and kind of the invasion of, of Americans into the, into Vietnam and all that. So I wonder if maybe there mm-hmm. was some sort of a psychological aspect to the, the people holding the POWs in the South that maybe made, would have possibly led them being treated worse. I'm not sure. Yeah. And also you have, you know, the uh, people are the jailers, if you will, in the North were typically NVA and there's a difference between, you know, regular NVA and Vietnam. Oh, right, yeah. um, and so, you know, there's a different dynamic and in, in how they operated and, and things like that. So it's really interesting. There was a good movie that came out with Christian Bale several years ago. I'm blanking out on the name, but it's, um, it was showcasing Dieter Dengler who actually escaped. Oh, yeah. um, and he was kept in he was kept in Laos. So that was an interesting um, account of a, a rarity when we look at both Korea and Vietnam is, you know, I think most people's instincts are like, well, why don't you just try to escape? But when you're a white American soldier or a black American soldier, right. even in Korea and Vietnam, you stand out right. and you don't speak the language. And how are you going to make it? out of there, you know, so we don't see a lot of people that made it out successfully uh, with escapes in either war with the POWs. Yeah, I, I kind of, when, when people say that kind of thing, you know, I, I kind of roll my eyes and I kind of think back to like, you know, <laughs> slaves. I have a lot of students in my classes when I'm talking about slavery, they're like, well, why didn't they just fight back? And it's like, well, how are you going to do that? What are you going to do? You, um, you know, they've, they've built a system where black skin equals slave. So where are you going to go that you don't have black skin? It's so it, yeah, it's always kind of, I don't know. I I kind of think it's ridiculous when people say, why didn't they try to escape? Well, (laughs) you know, until you're there, it's kind of hard to really put yourself in that situation, but. And it really does kind of help you put, um, I guess a, a POW experience in perspective when you can talk to somebody that was there and experienced it. And so, you know, when I'm having a bad day, sometimes I think back on some of these oral histories and I think, well, you know, at least I'm not being held, you know, at the Yalu right. River, um, you know, in a Chinese prisoner of war camp. Uh, Cause some of their stories were, are very emotional. It's really hard as a, as a, as the interviewer to listen to some of their experiences and try to like, hold it all together emotionally. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's really touching to hear some of their stories and, and how they felt the, the factors they felt got them through their captivity. So your interest in the Korean war and the Vietnam war, 
um, that's what led you to develop this this Vietnam War digital history project where you're the executive director. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is my passion project, which hopefully one day down the line will be my full-time you know, working mm-hmm. gig. But so when I, I was teaching um, at a, a college in Tempe, Arizona called University of Advancing Technology, and I was teaching there for a couple of years and I was teaching a lot of um, just survey level courses, you know, like a hundred level survey courses. And I did teach a, a specific Vietnam War class. And I noticed that students would come into my class and uh, they were not well versed at all on um, the Vietnam War. And um, as an instructor, you probably get a lot of textbooks for free from mm-hmm. publishers. And so one thing I started doing is I started looking at high school textbooks, but also looking at college textbooks just to see what kind of coverage the Vietnam War was getting in our textbooks. And so what I found is I looked at about five major um Uh, college course textbooks for survey level, 100 level courses. And each textbook followed the same pattern. Uh, There'd be a full chapter for World War I, a full chapter on World War II, and an average of seven to 10 pages for Vietnam War. And it wouldn't even have its own chapter. It would be usually tucked into a chapter about, you know, like the the, the 60s or the unrest Mm -hmm. in the 60s or something like that. So it it didn't even really get the attention that I feel that this war deserves um, because while we obviously history doesn't repeat itself exactly, when we look at one of the key lessons of the Vietnam War is how easy it is to get involved in a foreign conflict and how hard it is to extricate yourself. And so when we look at kind of current issues in the Middle East, I feel like there's a parallel there. And I feel if students today could have a better understanding of Vietnam, they may they might make those historical connections with um, current military issues today. So I was kind of thinking, you know, what could I, I do as an individual historian other than teaching that I could reach more people about the Vietnam War? And I got the inspiration from it because I think it was three summers ago, I was invited to speak um, at the Korean War Educators Conference. And I talked about my research about POWs. And then I got the idea from them because they have a Korean War digital history project. Um, and their focus is having students conduct oral histories of Korean War veterans. Um, And so I took it a different way. So I created the Vietnam War Digital History Project. And the idea is twofold. One is that I want to collect oral histories of Vietnam veterans. And I feel that time is of the essence because as a general group, the Vietnam War veterans um, have more health issues Mm -hmm. than we've seen from the Korean War um, veterans and from World War II veterans. And so I feel we, you know, Vietnam veterans now are in their 60s and 70s. And I feel that, you know, it's important that we get their stories and we put them into the historical record before this generation passes away. Um, And so one of those, so one of the focuses of the project is using oral histories. Um, And then the second focus is, since I've taught the Vietnam War extensively, I'm creating all my lesson plans and I'm putting them online on my website and making them open source. Um, And I'm going to modify them for high school teachers and then for college professors as well. Um, Because I think teachers probably don't really know how to approach this, particularly high school teachers, because it is a really politically charged war. Um, And you really have to understand the politics in America at the time to understand the Vietnam War. So I think maybe some teachers have a hard time, um, you know, where do I go with this? How do I teach the Vietnam War? Where do I start? What should I highlight? Those Mm -hmm. types of things. And so then parts of the oral histories can be used in those lesson plans as well, because what I've noticed with students is they might say, oh, history is really boring or whatever. But if you play an oral history, they are on the edges of the edge of yeah. their seats because they want to hear from the people that were there. So I got this idea. Well, if I can get these oral histories and if I can create lesson plans and I have other 
educational sources, like some good primary sources, links to the Pentagon papers and things like that, that they can use as well in the lesson plans, that it would be a service uh, to American students to uh, be able to learn more about the Vietnam War. And then as they enter college, they they might have a little bit more of, uh, of an understanding of this war and its importance in American history. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I'm going to, what I'll do is uh, when I post this episode, I will post a link to the project itself in the episode notes, if, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, that would be wonderful. And we also have a Facebook community okay. um, and I have a Twitter account for it as well. And so I am the only one running it right now. So if anyone out there wants to help <laughs> me, I would love it. I can't really pay you right now until I get some grant right. funding. But if you're interested in Vietnam and you want to contribute in any way, I'm happy to talk to you and, and see what your skills can can do for our project. Yeah, okay. That'd be great. Um, yeah, okay. So I'll put that up there. So that sounds like a really cool project. And it's it sounds like it's yeah. very, it'll be very useful, I think. it's Because I've always wondered with, like you're saying, with high school teachers, um, there is a kind of a question about how do we handle the Vietnam War, especially while mm -hmm. people are still alive that were around during the war. Um, because mm -hmm. it's it's easier to I think it's easier to approach I mean it's easier to approach World War II for a variety of reasons it's much more you know black and white good versus bad and all of that but um, but when that generation is mostly gone it's it's a bit easier to talk about it I taught a Vietnam War class uh, at the university level at um, at Ohio State a while back and probably they were probably between eight and ten actual Vietnam War veterans were in the class which made for really interesting conversations because I was able, and they were all thankfully willing to talk about it. So I was able to kind of bring them into the conversation, which I think made the class overall much better. Um, we oh, won't definitely. be able to rely on that forever. Of course, as you say, they're, they're starting to become an aging part of the population. But um, I, so I think this is great that you're putting together these um, oral histories and memoirs and the, the, the recollections of the people that were involved, because that does help to bring it a lot uh, to life uh, for people. And um, yeah, okay, so that's my long-winded way of saying awesome. <laughs> it sounds like a really cool project. <laughs> I'm pretty excited about it. It's just, you know, something I'm whittling away at, and hopefully in the next couple of years, I'll have some funding and I can really promote it more then, because I'd like to be able to travel more and interview, because right now I'm kind of stuck interviewing, you know, um, veterans in the Phoenix mm -hmm. area. Uh, but if I get funding or historians in other parts of the country that want to conduct the oral interviews as well, then that would work. Too. Right. Okay. Well, great. Then, you know, I can't, you yeah. know, I won't make any grand promises that this, this will help be the breakthrough for you, but you know, we'll, <laughs> I'll, <hope> so. <laughs> hopefully we can, we can do our best here. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about your career. So after you graduated from your degree programs, how did you, enter into the job market? What was your strategy for finding a job after graduation? Okay. So I love talking about this because I feel like I have a, a I had a good strategy hitting the ground. So I, I recognized when I graduated with my master's in military history that I was going to have a hard time finding a job, particularly a full-time tenure track, right? Which those mm -hmm. are like unicorns now, but right. so my whole goal was, okay, I just want to get an adjunct position, but I have no experience. Right. And that's that's the the cycle is you don't have any experience. No one wants to hire you. How are you going to get a job? So at the time I was living. So I graduated from Norwich in 2012, in June of 2012. And then my husband and I moved to the Bay Area um, at the end of 2012. And so I thought, well, what can I do to, um, you know, get 
my name out to these colleges that might hire me. So what I did is I, there are 17 colleges in my general vicinity that I was willing to commute to in the Bay Area, which is a disaster mm-hmm. commuting in the Bay Area, let me tell you. Right. Oh, I know it was a disaster, but I didn't care. I just wanted to get my foot in the door. I was willing to drive an hour each way. So sure. I, I uh, applied in the adjunct pools in every, uh, all these 17 colleges and three of them interviewed me. Um, and so the way I kind of tried to make myself stand out is in my, in my application, my cover letter, you know, I stress that I'm a new graduate. I don't have teaching experience, but while I was in grad school, um, I had a blog that I was active on. I don't really work on the blog anymore. It was just abigailpfeiffer.com. Um, but I would post some of my research papers and just some like fun historical things that I thought would be interesting. I also started a Twitter account that I only used for professional purposes. I didn't, so my Twitter is not, I don't post like fun personal stuff. I only use it to network with other historians and people in Mm -hmm. politics and things like that. Um, And I did a lot of book reviews. And so what I did is um, I reached out to every, I called the dean and emailed the dean of every college where I applied. And I said, hey, you know, I just applied in your adjunct pool. I wanted to introduce myself personally. I don't have any experience. But when I was in grad school, I did all of this to, you know, try to get more relevant in the history field. And I'm really excited to start teaching if you just give me a chance. And three of them interviewed me and two hired me as an adjunct. So that got me in the door. And the first college that um, hired me was called Skyline College. It's in San Bruno, Um San Bruno, California, which is south of San Francisco. And I want to shout out to Donna B. Stock, who was the dean who took a chance on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, her and Rosemary Bell, who was one of the senior professors there, uh, really gave me an opportunity. And I felt that once I could just get my foot in the door and show that, you know, I'm enthusiastic, I'm, I'm a good instructor, I, I know how to present historical information to my students, that I would be okay. And since I started teaching there, I was fine. I, I've never had a problem since securing um, an adjunct position, whether it's a ground class or an online class. It's just getting that first person to hire you, right? So when you apply to those adjunct pools, my advice to students is don't just wait because there's a hundred people in that adjunct pool Mm -hmm. or probably more. And so what's going to make your name stand out and what makes your name stand out is reaching out to the people that do the hiring and put your name out in front of them and explain to them you're a new graduate, but you're super excited and you want to get started. And that worked for me twice. (laughs) So I got two colleges to pick me up as an adjunct. We ended up moving back to Phoenix in 2014. And then I adjunct at um, Grand Canyon University, and I adjunct at Paradise Valley Community College, which is part of the Maricopa County Community College system. Uh, I taught at University of Advancing Technology, and then in 2014, Southern New Hampshire University hired me as an adjunct online. I've been teaching for them consistently since 2014, and that's really kind of helped me hone um, how to teach and present information to online students because it's a completely different ballgame when you're teaching online versus when you're teaching a ground class. Um, and so I've been doing SNHU for, well, I guess five years now. And then in 2018, I started working as a part-time evaluator for Western Governors University. Uh, they have a competency-based model. So evaluators don't instruct. They only um, evaluate student work. So I taught, uh, I was evaluating there for a little while, and then I got a full-time position there as a course lead in U.S. history, uh, where I help oversee a team of evaluators um, in the U.S. history and the world history courses. That's great. So your your way to basically get your foot in the door, I think, makes a lot of sense. It's a it's kind of a combination of 
networking and also it sounds almost like you're creating a uh, like a portfolio of work when you're talking about like your Twitter feed and your blog yeah. uh, where you're collecting all of your papers and all of that. It kind of collects it mm -hmm. all into one place. And a, a portfolio is not really something that we tend to emphasize too much in history, but I can see the I mean, there's a clear value in having that stuff readily available, um, especially if you can just give potential employers one URL to click on, and then that leads to all of the work that you've done. Mm -hmm. I can see that that could be a huge advantage um, that, rather right. than just having things laid out on a CV that don't have links and all of that. So I, 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 that's an interesting, it's an interesting strategy. I'm, uh, it's interesting to hear that it worked for you. That's great. Yeah. And it also shows that as a graduate student, you're looking ahead and you're not just thinking, well, I'll get this grad degree and then get a teaching position right, right away. Like you're not guaranteed any position because you have a graduate degree. And so you, I felt that by doing some stuff during graduate school that I didn't get paid for. I mean, obviously when you do book reviews, you're not getting paid. You get a free book, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but just by, you know, showing that I was willing to kind of get in the trenches and uh, start to make a name for myself as a historian, I think really makes you stand out against the students that get the grad degree and then just wait to be called. Yeah. You can't wait to be called because you're not going to get called. You have right. to put yourself out there. <laughs> yeah, it's like you said, I mean, every position has a hundred and some odd applicants. There's other people ap applying for it, at least, especially when you're talking that, like you said, the unicorn tenure track positions, those get hundreds of applications per opening, which is why it's such a rare thing to actually get one. Right. And, and for as much as we like to think that academia is a meritocracy, that is not always the case. A lot of it boils down to who you know, uh, where those yeah. people are, um, how willing they are to help you out. <laughs> it really is a lot more situational than we really like to say, but I think oh, yeah. that's basically the reality of it. Well, and especially like I haven't gotten a PhD and I'm probably not going to because I don't, for what I want to do, I don't feel like it's fully necessary. Mm -hmm. I might still down the road. It's not off the table, but uh, you know, if you don't have a PhD, those tenure track positions are even double unicorn. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that was another motivation of me to create the Vietnam War Digital History Project is to show that as a historian, you don't just have to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. There's other things you can do. And sometimes that means creating something on your own instead of waiting for this you know, unicorn position to open up uh, that you may never get. But in the meantime, you can create something. And so for me, creating this project was a way to show other historians and students that, um, you know, being a historian is much more than just trying to get a teaching job. It's also about interacting with the public. Yeah. And I imagine it has to feel intimidating the, th the thought of creating your own project like that, uh, because yeah, there's questions of funding and all of that. Oh, yeah. uh, but, I, but the payoff I, is enormous. I'm imagining even if, you know, even at your position, your stage now where you're not getting paid for it, but you're still focusing all of your research on something that you love. And you're, it is mm -hmm. something, it's not like somebody's telling you what to go research and you have to do it because that's what you're getting paid to do. Right. You're, have, you're having the option to go and research whatever you want. And basically you have complete control over what you're doing. And, yep. you know, the consequences, I mean, you, you know, you'll rise or fail based on the success of your ideas. And I think that's really impressive. 
And what's also really rewarding about it is I'll get random messages from our Facebook group from, uh, you know, and these people in my Facebook group, they don't really know that I'm this one individual kind of running the show, but mm-hmm. I get messages and from Vietnam veterans who will say, you know, thanks so much for this project. This is really great to see people out there, you know, promoting the education of the war. Um, I'll get messages from wives of uh, women who had been married to a man that died in Vietnam, thanking me for, you know, putting more effort into the education of the Vietnam War. And so that's super rewarding when like, I, even if just one person feels that they're, they're gaining some education or something from this project, it's, it's really rewarding. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, and yeah, I look forward to uh, hearing bigger and, you know, he- hearing this project get bigger and better and um, more well-known and all of that. Cause I think you've got some yeah. really cool ideas here. Okay, great. Well, uh, let's see. Did you have any uh, last thoughts that you'd like to share with students of history programs for how to enter the workplace or, you know, basically what to do with their lives? <laughs> yeah, well, I first of all, don't get discouraged when people tell you or you're going to get this a lot because I got this a lot. And I'm sure you did too, Rob. Oh, what are you studying? Oh, I'm, I'm in a master's program for history. Well, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Right. You know, they we all get it. And so don't get discouraged by those people because they just don't really understand. Um the importance of a history degree. History degrees are so important. Just look at what's going on right now in U.S. politics, right? And historians are on the front lines breaking down, you know, the, the impeachment process and things like that. And I, as historians, we actually serve a public good that I think gets un, um, overshadowed by this focus on you have to get a teaching job, but you can interact with the public and reach so many more people than you can if you just try to only teach, which is teaching is still great too. If you can get that job, go for it. Um, Don't get discouraged by those people and make your own niche, you know, figure out what am I passionate about in history and where is the need, what need needs to be filled? Because so I saw this need that the Vietnam War is not taught very well. It's not taught in depth. And there was a need there. So identify what's missing in historical education in the country and fill it in whatever way you can figure out, whether it's teaching or whether it's creating your own issue, your own project, um, do it. Because historians are so important in our society to understand history and to understand the present. So what you're doing by pursuing a history degree is really, really valuable. And don't let anybody discount that for you. Oh, yeah. And, you know, in my case, I'm doing this podcast to try to let students know what they can do with their lives afterwards. So hopefully that's I mean, that's one of the things that leads me to keep doing this is the hope that I'm helping people figure out what they're going to do with their lives. And so hopefully. And you are. So it's valuable. (laughs) I will take your word for it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. right, Well, before we go, do you have anything to uh, recommend to the audience? Yes. So this is not Vietnam War related, but um, I read a really great book earlier this year. It was just released, I believe, at the end of 2018. And it's by Professor Joanne Freeman. She teaches at Yale and she um, she specializes in early the early American Republic. Particularly, you might recognize her. um, She's kind of the Hamilton expert. And so before Lin-Manuel Miranda came out with the Hamilton, Joanne Freeman was kind of the go-to Hamilton expert. But she wrote this really awesome book, and it's called The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress, and the Road to Civil War. And what's really interesting about it is it it dispels this myth that we're in the most partisan time period in American political history. We've always had extremely partisan politics. And what this book shows is the actual physical violence that occurred in Congress in the years leading up to the Civil War. And then when I say violence, I mean, they were carrying knives and guns into the Senate and the House chambers and using them on one another. Um, And so 
a lot of students are familiar with the famous um, um, uh, caning of, was it Charles um, Sumner in Congress by yeah. Preston Brooks? Yeah. And that's, she highlights that, but there's many, many more instances that she t- discusses and, and puts it into a historical context and how this um, violence in Congress was, um, you know, really kind of led up to the Civil War because, you know, Congress couldn't even, you know, come to terms without shooting and, and stabbing each other. And so it's a really great popular history read too. So you don't have to know a lot about, you know, American history to read this and understand it. And uh, another thing I liked about the book is, um, when they talk about different politicians, they specify what state they were from and what political party they were from at the time. So it really kind of helps you keep track as you're reading about all these different politicians from this era. Um, it helps you keep them all kind of straight in your head as far as you know what political party they were a part of. So if you ever get a chance to read it, it is a super interesting read. And again, it's called The Field of Blood. Yeah, I've seen the book for sale, but I haven't read it yet, but I've heard it's really cool. And yeah, I'm looking totally forward cool. to, to getting that. Yeah. Great. Well, I am going I am going to, re- to recommend something Vietnam War related, and I'm going to recommend this because this is a book that I read when I took a Vietnam War class. You know, I want to, I don't want to date myself too precisely, <laughs> but we'll just, we'll just say in the early nineties uh, at a, at a uh, university and it, I've kept the book ever since, which, you know, historians, we are, we are, we're all pack rats. And so we all accumulate books, but I've, every time I move and that has been unfortunately often in my life, I've of course had to pare down the collection. And so anything that has survived, you know, fifth, God, what is, what am I up to now? 25 years or so of moving. <laughs> it's uh it's impressive. Uh, so anyway, the book I want to talk I'm just going to recommend is um, the, a Viet Cong memoir, an inside account of the Vietnam war and its aftermath by Truong Nhu Tang, who was a official within the Viet Cong in, uh, you know, in South Vietnam uh, during the war. Uh, the Viet Cong of course set up a government of its own that was kind of a shadow government of the official Saigon regime, which is the one that was propped up by the Americans. The Viet Cong government, this guy was the uh, Minister of Justice within the Viet Cong government. And so they, you know, they'd actually tried to act as though they were the legitimate government of, of South Vietnam. And it was hard to do, of course, because they're constantly being bombarded by P-52s and they're constantly on the run. And so, but the book is kind of, it's a really interesting account of what life was like in the Viet Cong when they're constantly being hunted down by the uh, the South Vietnamese military and also, of course, the Americans. There's a, the the thing that always stands out in my, in my mind um, is there's a, a moment in there where he talks about a B-52 bombing of their headquarters where everybody got underground and so all the people survived. But he talks about when after coming out of it, I mean, during the bombardment, he talks about how people were literally losing their minds because the bombardment, a B-52 bombardment is something that is hell on earth. It's, I mean, they, they, they're dropping a thousand bombs on on a small area. And mm-hmm. so anyway, so he, then he would talk about how you, coming out afterwards, of course, everybody is shell-shocked and they, nobody can hear anything and all of that. And he, it just stands out because he describes the, what was formerly a jungle is now basically a moonscape because everything has been scraped away by the, uh, the B-52s. And so it provides an interesting view of what life was like as somebody on the opposite side of the war. Yeah. Um, and this guy is also noteworthy because he was not a uh, he was not a communist. He wasn't doing this for a communist rebellion, or he wasn't he wasn't looking to create a communist government. He was a nationalist, kind of in the 
like Ho Chi Minh was back in the back yeah. in the early days. Um, and he was this guy was really influenced by Ho Chi Minh, and he, he had the same kind of nationalist view where what he wanted was Vietnamese independence. He didn't care about communism. And so when the war ended, this guy actually ended up being forced to flee the country because he was not a communist. And so even though his side won the war, he was no longer welcome in Vietnam because he was he didn't share the zeal of the communists. And so yeah. he eventually uh, fled to the U.S. as a um, uh, as a refugee. Uh, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. So it's a, it's a really interesting story. It's an interesting account of what life was like for the guys that the Americans were hunting down um, for the most part. So a Viet Cong memoir by Chuang Nhu Tang. And, and I that always, it's always a good idea, too, to read about the other side anytime you're studying a war, right? You can't have yeah. a, you know, a clear analysis of a war unless you understand what the other side went through as well. So that's a good recommendation to kind of get a feel for what it was like for the Viet Cong yeah. in South Vietnam. Yeah, which reminds me of another book that I won't go into as much, but much detail about, but a more recent book by uh, Lien Heng uh, Nguyen called Hanoi's War, An International mm. History of the War for Peace in Vietnam, which was the first book based on the North Vietnamese archives. Um, for the first time, it was opened up to um, the writer of that book. And so she's basically telling the war from the North Vietnamese perspective, which is something that we did not have access to for a very long time. And the long story short of it was that the North Vietnamese, um, Ho Chi Minh had, you know, by by the early 60s, Ho Chi Minh had kind of had basically become a figurehead. He was no longer the guy in charge. Uh, Le Zuan was the guy that was in charge of the North Vietnamese government. But uh, basically, Le Zuan's strategy is that he knew that you just got to wait out the Americans. Uh, you just... Yeah, because it's not because we're the, not <laughs> the Americans aren't going to stomach this for long, and so mm -hmm. we're going to just basically make things as bad as we can for the Americans. We're going to suffer greatly for it, but that's the way we're going to win. And of course, basically, the point of the book is that yeah, it played out pretty much exactly as he called it back in the mm -hmm. early '60s. Is that this, this is all you got to do, and, and it all worked out. So anyway, so I'll put links to those books and uh, your recommendation in the uh, episode notes. Also, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. And so again, thank you for joining me today, Abigail. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Abigail Pfeiffer, I'm Rob Denning. Until next time.